Let's open up our Bibles once again to the book of 1 Samuel. This is going to be the last time we're going to be in 1 Samuel because we arrive here at the very final chapter. Very short chapter. It's only 13 verses. And you remember from last week that what we are dealing with, we've got David and we've got Saul. And these are two men, both deeply flawed men as all men are flawed. And they both were brought by God, I believe, to a point of crisis. And God uses that crisis to hopefully turn the man back to himself. And that was the case of what we had in chapter 30 with David. David had gone through a long season where the things of God were not as important to him as they should have been. There was compromise there. There was fear going on there. There was a lot of lies and deceit going on in his life. But thank God, God is faithful. And God brought the man back to sanity, so to speak. Now, in chapter 31, we're going to have another man, this man Saul. He's brought to a point of crisis, and it's not going to turn out well for him. The reason it's not going to turn out well, like in the case of David, David turned to the Lord. But Saul was not a man who would turn to the Lord. He was a man that would try and finagle his way out of it. He was a man that would, that would try and wiggle out of the problem rather than just being honest with God. Everything that was wrong in his life was not his fault. It was the fault of another. He was a, a narcissistic individual. Now we're going to see that there are some, there's some things that are very different between chapter 30 and 31, but there's also some parallels that are going on here. Now, you remember that David, he is in the south. And in chapter 30, those events all took place in the south. And then, you know, 80 to 100 miles approximately to the, to the north is where we have Mount Gilboa. And this, of course, is going to be the scene of the battle of Mount Gilboa. And so they're taking place in two very different places. But there are some uh, similarities here as well. Uh, because in chapter 30, we read that David... He, he, uh, he smites the Amalekites, and that's nakah is the Hebrew word. We're going to see in chapter 31 in verse 2 that the Philistines slew, that's the same word, nakah, they slew Saul and his sons. And then you go back to chapter 30, the Amalekites, they fled, that's noose. And what we have in chapter 31, in verse 7, is that the men of Israel fled noose. So there's, there's this parallel where you're seeing the same thing is going on, but it has far, far different uh, results. Now you remember that all of the armies of the Philistines have gathered together. This is one final push. Now again, remember, this conflict has been going on for 40 years Saul has been on the throne for 40 years, and for all of those 40 years, there has been this intense back and forth going on, and it would seem apparent that the Philistines, they, they smell blood in the water, the king is insane, the king is driving his allies away from him, and so the time to strike is now, and so all five of these city-states gather their forces together for one final push. And the result, you remember, that this had on Saul from chapter 28 is that when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Now again, these guys are gathering together and they have very bad intentions for Saul and the children of Israel. In fact, in the book of Ezekiel, the Lord describing why, why he destroyed the Philistines, 
In Ezekiel 25, he said, thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines dealt vengefully and took vengeance with a spiteful heart to destroy because of the old hatred. There was deep-rooted bitterness and they wanted to destroy Israel. So Israel now, you remember, they have gathered on the slopes of Mount Gilboa and it's gonna be on these slopes where Saul and unfortunately his son uh, Jonathan and his other sons are gonna be killed as well. So we read in verse one, it says, now the Philistines, they fought against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Now remember, this was all prophesied. This was gonna happen just the day before in chapter 28, at the seance, you remember, that Saul called, and, and here comes Samuel. What did Samuel say to him? Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. I'm dead, you're gonna be dead with me. And the Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Now. The, the historian Josephus, he points out a very interesting thing about Saul. I mean, here is Saul being told, you know, tomorrow, you are gonna be with me. You're gonna die tomorrow in battle. So he's got, he's got a little, little time, he's got a few hours. He can make a run for it, right? He could, he could take off, uh, but he doesn't do that. He goes, he goes into the battle knowing that he's gonna die. What, what is that like for a man? What kind, of, what kind of mental gymnastics do you have to go through in your mind to know, okay, I'm gonna die as I step into this battle, but I'm gonna step into this battle anyway. Josephus, he puts, it, he puts it like this. But when men's minds expect no good event, but they know beforehand that they must die and that they must undergo that death in the battle uh, also, after this, neither to be affrightened nor to be astonished at the terrible fate that is coming, but to go directly upon it when they know it beforehand. This is that I esteem the character of a man, uh, of a man truly uh, courageous. And so here we've got this guy. He knows what's going to happen, but I'm going to show up and I'm gonna fight uh, anyway. It's interesting, Paul Apple, he makes this observation in a classical sense. Saul could not be called a great king, but that his achievements were many, as is clear from David's exquisite elegy recorded in 2 Samuel chapter one that we'll get to next week. Whatever military and judicial victories may have been attributed to Saul, they are overshadowed by the tragic spiritual failures. We probably all know guys like this, or we've read about guys like this, that, I mean, they had accomplished so much, but there was just something that was bent, there was something that was broken in them, and with all that they had accomplished, it still was overshadowed by the deep character flaws that they had, and, and that's Saul. He was a mighty warrior, but this dude had some serious character flaws. Now, we read, unfortunately, in verse 2 that the Philistines, they followed hard after Saul. They picked him out. We're going to go after this guy. We're going to cut off the head, and we're going to end this battle soon. And so they followed hard after Saul and his sons. And then, sadly, 
the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, Malchua, and Saul, Saul's sons, and the battle became fierce against Saul. Now notice we're, we're told here that the archers, so this is plural. So there's a number of archers now uh, that have hit him. And he was severely wounded uh, by uh, the archers. So, so here is a man, he's laying there, he's got who knows how many arrows stuck in him. He's you know, bleeding out, and uh, here he is laying. What a, what a sad a sad sight. And then you've got all of these innocent people. All these innocent people are dying. Why? Because of the man's sin, because of his rebellion. It was all because of him. And so in verse 4, and then Saul, he said to his armor bearer, withdraw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest the uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. So he's, he's afraid of torture. And of course, good reason. I mean, what, what did they do? not all that long ago, to Samson when they captured him. They put him through hell. And so he doesn't want to go through that. And so, but he says, but his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. And therefore, Saul took the sword and he fell on it. <laughs> you know, this is kind of weird. Then his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead. Now, mark that, this guy knows that Saul is, is dead. I point that out because that'll come back back into our story next time we're together. And he also fell on his sword and he died with him. So it's kind of weird, isn't it? Here the armor bearer and okay, he's dead. I'm, I'm gonna kill myself um, as, as well. Now, remember the armor bearer, there was a, a strict code of conduct with these guys. I mean, he was there to protect Saul. And so if he shows up after the battle alive and Saul is dead, well, he's probably going to be charged with dereliction of duty of, of some kind, and I'd imagine they just would have killed him anyway. And so he, he runs himself uh, through here. Now, it's interesting. Let's, let's talk a little bit uh, about suicide. Uh, the Bible doesn't speak a great deal about suicide. I think that there's somewhere around seven different people that spoken of in Scripture that committed suicide. And the only one whose eternal fate uh, we're told about is, is Judas. And of course, Judas uh, ends up in judgment, not because of, of the suicide, but he ends up in judgment um, because, of course, uh, betraying Christ and turning his back on Christ. You know, you look at, you look at suicide results uh, through the years, the last number of years, and we're, we're able to see that really they're, they're kind of held steady, but there's always going to be a certain percentage with, within any culture um, where there is a darkness, there's a hopelessness that comes upon the soul, where they honestly believe that the only way, I mean, think about how dark your mind has to be for you to believe that the best course of action, things are so bad in your life that the best course of action is I'm gonna simply end it all. Now there are many who would say that suicide is a sin, it's self-murder, and it's a sin that you'll never be forgiven of and you're gonna be judged and you're not gonna be forgiven of it because when you've committed that sin, well, you're dead. And you can't, you can't say, I'm sorry, right? Murder somebody, well, you're still alive. You can say, I'm sorry. Rob a bank, right? You can, you're still alive. You can say you're sorry. Now, look, we are not saved because 
we have said we are sorry for every single one of our sins. When you became a follower of Christ, you did not go back in your mind and repeat from memory all of the naughty stuff that you've done over the course of your life. You didn't go back. Look, it's impossible to do. You cannot enumerate all of your sins. You can't remember every time in your childhood you disrespected your parents. You can't go back in your memory and recall every bad thought that you had and every bad word that you ever said. The reason why we are saved is because we make confession that we are sinners. Not because we have given God an itemized list of what our sins were. Look, we don't go to hell according to the condition of our death. Guy's walking down the street. Some good-looking chick is coming the other way. And she walks past him and he turns around, takes a second look. His mind goes where it shouldn't go. Here he has fornicating thoughts in his mind. And all of a sudden, a car loses control, comes up on the sidewalk, runs over him, kills him dead. Is he going to go to hell because that last thought in his mind was him? Well, of course not. We're not saved because we have somehow eradicated all of the sinful tendencies from us. We are saved because we're placing our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are certainly warning signs. And, and of course, suicide is a horrible thing to have happen. But what you oftentimes see in people, there's an obsession with death. They're talking about it over and over again. There are sudden personality changes. They used to be the life of the party. They're not that so much. There's physiological uh, symptoms. There's sleeplessness. There's weight loss. There's loss of appetite. Of course, sometimes a person is going through a crisis situation where they've lost a job. Bad things have happened at school. They've got marriage problems going on. But there is also an unprompted, unprompted uh, preparations for death. You know, they've got, a, a, Mick, they've got a, a baseball signed by Mickey Mantle. And it's, you know, it's their treasure. It's their, their prize. And they take it and they give it to you. They take this thing that's so important to them, and you can just see that they're kind of preparing for death. But look, the, the author of life is the only one who is able to take life and the only one who should take life. And the author of life tells us in Deuteronomy 30, therefore choose life that both you and your descendants uh, may live. So suicide, it's a horrible thing to put on your friends and family, but it is not something that's necessarily condemning somebody to judgment. So he commits suicide here, and so does his armor bearer. And uh, just, like, just like the Lord said, uh, you'll notice that Israel is now scattered. They take off, and notice in verse 8, and so it happened on the next day. When the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And notice they cut off his head and they stripped off his armor 
And they sent word throughout all of the land of the Philistines to proclaim in the temple of their idols and among uh, the people. So they begin to desecrate uh, the armies and desecrate the dead, rather. And desecration of the dead uh, is as old as warfare. Now, we in the West, uh, we're horrified by it. And, and we certainly seem to have uh, a, a different set of values. You remember a few years ago, there were those four Marines uh, in Iraq uh, that, uh, you know, again, they're young guys, uh, obviously not very intelligent, and uh, they'd killed several Taliban, Taliban, and then you remember that they, they took a video of themselves urinating, you remember, on the, the, the dead bodies, and you remember the great uproar. Oh, there was just outrage, you know, through, throughout the land. Now, I'm thinking, well, they killed them, you know, if, if you were to ask me, do you want me to kill you or urinate on you, right? I, I think I'd know which one I would pick, right? But here in the West, we just don't like the idea of people messing with the dead. But you have to understand, in this ancient world, this was like hunting. You go out in the woods, you shoot a deer. What do you do? You cut the head off and you put it in your den, right? And so these guys are hunting their adversaries. They don't see much difference. And so they then take and uh, they, they take all of his armor and they're, they're putting it in, in their temple. Notice in, in verse 10, and then they put the armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, that would be plural, and they, they fastened his body on the wall of Beth Sheen. Now, what, what's being described is that Bethshean is to the northeast of Mount Gilboa, uh, a number of miles. And so this, this lets us know how far uh, the Philistines have been able to advance into Israeli uh, territory, so much so that they've got a, a pagan temple uh, set up in Israeli uh, territory. Now, it's interesting, just a number of years ago, uh, the University of Pennsylvania uh, actually found the temple of Ashtaroth that was up on this uh, knoll uh, over, overlooking the city. Once again, uh, archaeology uh, verifying the, the story of Scripture for us. And so then notice in, um, in verse 11, and then the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead, they heard that the Philistines had, what the Philistines had done to Saul, and all of the valiant men, they arose and they traveled by night, they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shean. And then they came to Jabesh and they burned them there. Now that's, that's interesting. So this is, they're cremating the bodies. I know a lot of people, they're always asking me about, well, hey, what does the Bible say about cremation? And, you know, is there anything wrong if, you know, I would have a loved one uh, cremated? And the Bible really doesn't say any, anything about it. But here we do have an example of bodies being, born, uh, being burned. And, um, and notice there's, there's nothing in the text that would indicate uh, that this was sinful or that this was, this was wrong. Uh, essentially, the fire is doing in 60 minutes what the earth is going to do in 60 years, if you will. And uh, so they, they burned them there in Jabesh, and they then took their bones. So apparently they didn't, they didn't burn them as long as we burn them because there's bones here. And then they buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh, and they uh, fasted uh, for seven days. Now, what we're being told here is that Jabesh Gilead, now it's on the east side of the Jordan River. And so these guys, they marched all night, somewhere around 20 miles, 
and they took the bodies down and then they took them back. Now, you remember that early on in the administration of Saul, that Jabesh Gilead was being threatened by Nahash the Amorite. And you remember that Nahash the Amorite was, was threatening them with destruction. And so Jabesh Gilead, they, they sued for peace. You know, what, what do we have to do to be at, at peace with you, you guys? And you remember that Nahash, he said, all right, you want peace with me? Every guy, you got to gouge out your right eye. I want a big pile of eyes right in front of me. And if you guys do that, then I'll be at peace. Well, obviously, that's going to freak out a city, right? Nobody wants to gouge out their own eye. And so they said, give us a few days. And Nahash was so confident of how strong he was. He said, sure, yeah, take a week. I don't care. And so they broadcast throughout Israel, hey, we need help right now, 911. And of course, Saul responded, and Saul gave them victory over Nahash. That was 40 years before this. So these guys so appreciated Saul. And they remembered the wonderful thing that he did for them 40 years ago. And they said, guys, this isn't right. It's not an honorable thing. Let's march up there. Let's hazard our lives. And let's do the right thing for this guy that did us a solid uh, so many uh, years ago. And so they bring him back and they give him a proper burial and uh, fasted for seven days. They, as a city, they, they honored this guy. And uh, the book of 1 Samuel closes out. Warren Wiersbe he said, first Samuel, it opens with the birth of a gifted baby, Samuel. And it closes uh, with the death of a guilty man, uh, King uh, Saul. You know, this is one of those great examples. It's one of those great stories in scripture of, of a guy, of a follower of God who started out well, but he doesn't, he doesn't finish well. He doesn't finish strong. And I've said this before, I, I believe that a tactic of the enemy, that he is always more interested in taking you out late in life than early in your faith. Because if you've been walking with the Lord 40, 50, 60 years, and you've been preaching to anybody that will listen, and you're sharing your faith with your grandkids and your next door neighbors, and then you crash and burn in your old age, that then takes away all of your credibility. It takes away whatever authority you had, and people end up saying, Oh, yeah, you know, I remember that guy preaching and telling me this and telling me the power of God, telling me what Jesus can do. And now, now look at what has happened. And it totally makes a mockery of your testimony. You remember that Jesus, he said, for which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise... When he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, and all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. It is always an embarrassment. It is always a black eye to the church when we see brothers and sisters who are unable to finish well in their faith. It is important. And those of us, as we age and we find ourselves in kind of the twilight years of our life, 
We've got to be on guard and we've got to be praying, Lord, keep me. Don't don't let me get within an inch of the finish line and then do some idiotic thing that totally destroys um, my testimony. Now, when when I was um, when I was a kid, I came from a family where the men in my family, you, you drank and you smoked and you worked, you worked hard, and then you fished and you hunted and you played cards. And that was kind of the sum total of a man's life. And so I grew up just hunting all the time. And I hunted more than I really cared for. And we hunted, we hunted everything. And one of my favorite kinds of, of hunting uh, was, was always rabbit hunting because we had just terrific uh, rabbit dogs. And what a lot of people don't know about rabbits is that when you kick a rabbit up, that if you can keep that rabbit running, that rabbit will just run around and in a complete circle. And he will come back to the very place where you kicked him up. And that's what the dogs are for. The dogs are to get on the trail and continue to keep the rabbit running. And I just, I loved it. It was one of my favorite things in life. That those dogs would get on that trail and you just hear them barking all the way around the woods. Of course, the rabbit, you know, the rabbit's a mile ahead of those dogs. But you just stand there and then pretty soon, you know, you'll just hear a little bit of noise in the underbrush and here comes that rabbit. And that rabbit is just running right at you, right? And, and there were times where I would let that rabbit run two, three times before uh, I, I would shoot it. Now, there's a story that is told of a dog that kicked up a rabbit and he started chasing the rabbit and barking and uh, going after it. And the dogs in the neighborhood, they heard the commotion, they heard the barking. And so they joined in and they started in the chase and the chase went on for a long time. But eventually, the dogs that came late, they began to drop off one after another until finally it was only the original dog that was still in the race. Now the difference between the original dog and all the other dogs that came on later is that the original dog saw the rabbit. The original dog had a deeper experience and that deeper experience kept the dog in the chase. My wife and I, we are first-generation Christians. We come out of non-Christian backgrounds. And through these many years, right, we have seen God work. We have seen miracles happen. We have heard the voice of God in our life. We have, we have sensed the keeping power of God upon us. And we're passionate in our pursuit of God. And the problem comes in when you start getting into the second and third generation of believers. That there isn't quite the experience, there isn't quite the passion with them that there is so oftentimes found in first generation believers. Now, what did Paul tell the Philippians? And I, I close with this, being confident of this, that he that began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. God will get you across the finish line. But you've got to keep yourself in the race. You've got to keep yourself in the game. 
And what happens is we get disappointed, we get angry, a little bit of bitterness starts taking root in our heart, and we take ourselves out of the chase. And once we have done that, we have set ourselves up to be one of those, and there, how many souls are there in the history of Christianity? How many guys are there that they began like a house of fire and they just end with a whimper? You don't want that to happen to you. You want to be able to say, along with the Apostle Paul, I have finished the race. I have completed what God has given me to do. And henceforth, there is a crown laid up for me. And it's all glory from here on out. That's the kind of people that we desire to be. And so as we go to prayer, we need to be praying, Father, give us a deep experience with you. Give us a deep experience that we know who you are. We know what you can do. And we're not going to jump ship when all of a sudden the seas start getting a little rough. Oh, Father, help me experience you. And now, Father, we ask that as we leave here tonight, Lord, we, we do seek that we would know you better. And may our knowledge of you grow in depth. And I pray that we would have experiences with the living God this week. You are alive. You're not stone. You're not made out of wood. We don't need to pick you up and move you from one place to another. You are alive. And we ask, Father, that the living God would reveal himself to each and every one of us this week. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.